0: Peatlands are some of the most valuable yet threatened environments on earth. Our new artistic collaboration, Stacks, has explored issues around people and place across three peatlands in the southwest of Britain. In this conversation, you'll hear the voices of collaborators Rose Ferraby, Rob St. John and me, Tommy Perman. Here's Rose to start us off.
1: So if you go up onto the uplands of the moors in the southwest of Bodmin and Dartmoor and Exmoor, you'll see a whole range of different kinds of landscape. Some of those will be quite well preserved, rich, peaty landscapes full of life, whilst others are single species, dry, drained. And that's because up on these moorlands, there's a history of human occupation, of human land use that's changed through time. And they've been really affected by, particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries of the idea of agricultural improvement. When these landscapes were heavily drained, uh, drainage ditches were cut right across them, you can see these real sort of uh, hashed landscapes, these different drains going across. And as a result, you know, we've got less tree cover. The water is just washing off the moorlands now. Uh, It's not been held up. And as a result, the peat is drying out and those landscapes are changing and transforming into Landscapes with much less peat on them, but also very changed ecologies and changing biodiversity as a result. Working with peat gives you this ability to look at changing environments over long periods of time. Peat is an archive of of different environments, of different species. You can look at the pollen and human impacts within it. So we can really trace how these landscapes have changed. I think looking at moorlands today, it's very easy to think that they're always the way they are now, that they've always been this way. You know, we think of Dartmoor and we have a very particular image in our head of what Dartmoor looks like. And what peat gives us is this ability to see that it's been very different in the past. And that's really important at this point because different projects around the country are trying to do peatland restoration. The Southwest Peatland Partnership are trying to do large scale peatland recovery, um, using things like blocking up drains, uh, altering hydrologies to try and keep the water back uh, on the uplands, uh, helping in flood prevention, but also water quality. And it's really important that that work happens. Otherwise the peat's going to dry out and blow away and all that fantastic ecology and life, and also this sort of uh, archive of the past will just blow off in the wind. Trying to understand these changes and how these landscapes have changed through time is a really vital part of this ongoing work, I think to try and understand the past and the future together. And that's why Maura Angus, who's the uh, director of the Southwest Peatlands Project, um, we began talking with her about how can we communicate these ideas? How can we think about change and draw out all these invisible aspects of these wonderful, lively Peatland landscapes and all these different processes of change? How can we deal with that and begin to create something that allows us to think and see and get drawn into these different threads of stories in these wonderful landscapes.
2: And peatlands are such vital landscapes in kind of contemporary environmental discussions, aren't they? They kind of cover, I think it's about 3% of the Earth's surface, but they're disproportionately important in um, mitigating the effects of climate change, you know, tackling biodiversity loss and buffering these risks like flooding and drought they're very sensitive landscapes aren't they they're kind of both very sensitive to the effects of climate change but also in turn they have a sensitivity to how climate change is going to evolve in the future you know in the ways that they they lock up carbon peatlands often like form very very slowly as well haven't they peat itself is kind of dead and decaying uh, plant matter that's that's kind of accumulated over over thousands of years So how is that all been played out in your experience, Rose, in the southwest? What are kind of the big issues coming from the three moors that we've been working on?
1: I think the interesting thing, as you say, with the peat is that it's something that we can't really see. It's so important and it's such a rich environment. And yet very often people are totally unaware of it. We all know what moorland looks like, you know, that we look across the moor and might see heather and different kinds of plant species or particular birds that you might hear and see Very few people are aware of actually what's underneath that and that peat that exists down there and those hidden worlds. Unless you say, Rob, you know, the time spans that are captured within those peatlands is just quite magical, really. You know, thousands of years of organic matter caught up and the wetness of the peat and the anaerobic conditions, the lack of oxygen means that the preservation of things and organic materials in there is just astonishing. So you've got this amazing archive of the world. As you say it's sort of like, um, yeah, an environmental uh, monitoring device that allows us mm. to look back and and think forward uh, in quite an astonishing way.
2: So we've got we've got these three peatlands in Southwest Britain. We've got Bodmin Moor, Dartmoor, and Exmoor. And you know, as you're saying, Rose, they're kind of hidden worlds they're, they're rich and they're special they're archives of the past but they've also got these kind of very important roles and kind of changing worlds of, of the present and the future so how did all of this form stacks the project that the three of us have, have done together
1: well i suppose it started with when i was working with morag who directs the southwest peatland partnership uh, down in exmoor we had a lot of discussions about how we think about these environments, but also how it's really difficult to communicate to people what's happening underneath the surface of these landscapes and also how change is occurring. So how, how can we help people think about change? Drawing in archaeology and showing how these environments have changed long term uh, really makes a big difference to that. So I suppose the little germ of the seed of stacks began with talking to Morag about how we could communicate these ideas and the fact that through creative practice, through sort of using art in imaginative ways, we could open up those hidden worlds and allow people to imagine themselves down into those peaty landscapes, bring out the, the voices and the imagery and those little threads of stories that are held so well in that squidgy ground.
0: So when did stacks begin? 2020 is that right?
1: Yeah, it began about the beginning of as we sort of went into lockdown, I think probably.
2: <laughs> I think we were discussing it in 2020 and started it right at the start of 2021. So we were still in lockdowns, weren't we? Which I think in in a way has really influenced the form that stacks has taken because you know the three of us are used to working across kind of film and sound and Kind of ethnographic, you, know, you call it, kind of archive work in with with voices and, and oral histories, and I think initial discussions about what stacks could be, because it was quite an open brief, wasn't it? From Morag, you know, maybe initially talked about there being a physical installation or, or realization of whatever we came up with, but in reality, we were all in our houses, or you know, restricted to kind of. A very small radius around them and so we chatted a lot didn't we those kind of early days about you know these characteristics of of the people and landscapes that we were being asked to to express through a collaboration but also kind of what we all wanted to bring to the collaboration and for me at the time I was um, spending quite a lot of time on a website called window swap where you can go onto a website and just click to be shown a random view from somebody's window across the world you know you could be looking out over a garden in argentina or you could be looking from the top of a tower block in in china and you you know essentially just be watching this kind of slow unfurling of of daily life and there was something quite addictive in lockdown about seeing through somebody else's eyes like seeing these worlds that were very much off limits to me and so I think that was an early idea that I brought about well, what if if we can't make a kind of physical realization of this work, we make some kind of online thing that has a kind of window swap, but maybe can have a look at all these vastly different scales from the from the microscopic to the absolutely gigantic in both of space and time that kind of characterize Peatlands. And so that definitely started a conversation about how we made films for stacks, and um, Tommy I don't know if you remember how you felt at the start of the collaboration.
0: Yeah I, I think one thing that resonated for me with your experience of looking through these online windows or kind of portals to other people's um, lives or, or view, looking through their eyes kind of was um, that I felt living in Scotland in, in Kinross quite far away geographically far away from the southwest of England and these moorlands and I knew that most likely I wasn't going to be able to to visit because of the restrictions and because of my family life and and so it was interesting having these discussions about um remote collaboration and what we could each bring to it and um, and I really value the these kind of collaborations and um, the different perspectives that actually can come from being distant to something and from seeing something through somebody else's eyes or or the way that somebody else uh, discovers and experiences a landscape so that Actually, that really excites me. You know, if, if I can't visit the place, I love to be able to kind of experience it through somebody else. Um, so that, that informed the way that I was I was talking. And I think potentially I became a useful <laughs> sounding board or, or somebody for the two of you, um, because you live quite close together and, and met up a, a few times throughout the project to work together. But I r- remained distant and but i was somebody to share ideas with and processes with and give that space for reflection which for this project ended up being so crucial and i think the long gestation of the work was important too
2: it's funny isn't it it's almost a form of uh, remote sensing you know this kind of phrase that uh, environmental scientists use to kind of um take these huge scale kind of um Yeah, snapshots of a landscape. But I suppose in this sense, you know, we're talking about artistic collaborations. It's like a remote sensing of landscapes done digitally from different places. So you shot some films on kind of peatland areas close to you, Tommy, using lenses that you'd made. Is that right?
0: Yeah, so at the same time as this project was going on, I was working with a friend, um, making some films with him, and um, we'd come up with this idea of making lenses from landscape to represent a, a particular place that we were making a film about, and I was looking at that landscape for things that could be used as pinhole lenses. And I discovered that natural materials made these really quirky camera lenses. So I was just picking up leaves that already had holes in them and using them as a pinhole lens over my camera body. And you get all these fascinating optical effects, so distortions, kind of kaleidoscopic effects, so where there were multiple holes through a leaf you get multiple light sources creating overlaid versions of an image, so it's kind of like different perspectives in one shot and um, it's such an exciting kind of technique to to play around with. So when we were talking about ideas for recording landscape, that instantly came to mind and I, I tested out some of these techniques on the, the wetlands and the peatlands around Loch Leven, where I live, um, which has a very historic peatland called Port Moke Moss. And so yeah, we wanted to capture some kind of watery stuff around here so I used these um, natural lenses to capture some footage here
2: Yeah and they've ended up with these like very soft um, kind of light flary uh, kind of frames haven't they of like capturing these kind of Textures of and, and color palettes of of the peatlands, but in in ways that the human eye uh, definitely wouldn't, you know. And it's almost like you've used the landscape as your as your lens um, to kind of refract back, I guess.
0: That became important for us thinking about the other aesthetics of the films as well. We, we had lots of discussions about kind of level of focus and you know how much detail we wanted to capture and how much. Um, I suppose we should talk about how the we arrived at this decision to stack the films, apart from it being a neat kind of tie-in to the name of the project and to the idea of peat Stacks. Um, visually, it was very interesting, isn't it, um, to be able to create compositions. So, no, I can't actually remember, the. you know, this idea came through discussion, but I can't remember how it formed. <laughs> Do you have memories of that, Rob or Rose?
1: We, we had the idea of the sort of stratigraphy of the peak, wasn't it? We were thinking about stratigraphies and layers and time. So we had the idea of future and present and past. And then we were also thinking of different ideas. Rob, you were talking about sort of adaptation. It was sort of ideas of the three different things, three ways of looking three views in I guess but this is where the collaboration's so exciting because obviously if I'd been doing this by myself there's no way I could have done this but Tommy you know you and Rick have managed to create this amazing beautiful website with those films stacked up
0: yeah so the the finished website gives um, visitors to the, the website this opportunity to kind of explore the films that we've all created um, and I was trying to work out I think there's There's hundreds of films in the end, hundreds of clips that um, have been fed into this um, format that people can shuffle between. I'm not very good at maths. I've not done the sums to work out the number of possibilities, but there must be an enormous number of possibilities for how many different compositions you can encounter on the website. And I think that that's very important to the work.
1: It gives a sense of that discovery, doesn't it? I think is that... I think part of what I really love about making the films and making the films with you two is that idea that you're going out into landscapes, and through the the lens of having to sort of hunt for what is it about these landscapes that makes them PT? What is it in terms of the colour or the light or the yeah the ways that you focus on things and you know you were talking to me about the kind of focal lens and how you get into things? You know how can we best communicate and pull that out of a landscape? And when we go into it, you know, when Rob and I went out together and were looking at film, you sort of drift off by yourself into your own little world and direction and your own little sort of uh, curiosities that you get stuck into when you're filming, that real absorption of um, finding a way into a way of making an image that communicates it. And I think by creating the website like that, it's giving the people coming to the website and listening to it and experiencing it that same way of picking through a landscape of, you know, searching for the thing that resonates with, with them, I think.
2: Yeah. It's like catching those traces of of colour that might be very small in scale or fleeting, you know, kind of gusting in and out with the light that show peatlands to be anything but this kind of soggy, inhospitable place. I think that's quite important. So it's interesting to me how the that kind of trio format of the three films that you can switch around emerged out of us making these films and you know as we said about tommy's kind of this really exciting experimental way of pulling a color palette from a landscape but you were working in kind of resonant ways with slipping in and out of focus weren't you rose when you were filming
1: yeah i i mean um when we first went out rob together up onto the peatland uh one evening and uh we were looking at all the peat hags where the erosions happened and things and I started filming it and you know it, it wasn't very windy it wasn't wet so you're filming basically something that's just quite still very little is happening what what is happening happens over such long periods of time that it's very hard to capture in film in anything that's sort of visually interesting I suppose so I became at first frustrated by that that um I couldn't find a way into it that I liked and then I think um, completely accidentally I'd been focusing you know I had my lens right out on one thing and then I um, was swinging the camera around to look at some roots that were hanging down over a peat hag and um, they were caught completely off focus so they suddenly appeared these um, amazing sort of white cellular forms that as they sort of drifted in front of one another the the light broke up into these other sort of cellular arrangements and suddenly that felt much more like what peatland was and this idea of things um, moving and morphing and organic changes and things and then kind of really by accident and then you know as i experimented with it pulling completely out of focus and breaking an image right down into its cellular parts became really fascinating and how much of it you needed or what you focused on to really give a sense of that landscape or that particular detail that you were looking at. You know, Aaron Aranbrough and Bodmin finding little bits of pink of bellheather amid the millennia and you get this lovely sense of these sort of little pink dashes amongst this pale yellow and the ways that that colour can be brought out in that way. Um, but Rob, you did some fantastic things with um, experimenting. One night we went out to a river, didn't we, and uh, experimented with projecting
2: yeah. Um, so I think I wanted to kind of continue this idea that was in both your work of kind of letting the landscape like dictate the images in ways that perhaps I didn't have full control over. And so one of the ways that I kind of went with is a technique that Tommy and I have both experimented with in the past and taken a mini projector out in the dead of night and projecting images onto landscape features and then refilming that. And so we got hold of a load of archive images of human activity on the three moors, you know, peat cutting, standing stones, things like that. These kind of sepia and black and white landscapes and went and projected these onto the bottom of these moorland streams in the moonlight and then re-filmed the results. And so the bed of the river was essentially the projection screen and the the water flow moving over the top gave it a sense of movement and grain, you know, as sediment and insects and fish fry passed over and caught a glint of the moonlight and the projectors kind of beam. Um, So they became kind of animated. These 100-year-old images became animated by the present-day stream also, took a lot of still images myself 35mm um, and 120 uh, camera film. Yeah, I was really interested in using long exposures to kind of not give these kind of representations of the form of the landscape, but kind of catch these color palettes. And then I would kind of bury these films. In the peat, uh, buried them for six months or so, made little cairns to mark where they were on the on the hilltop and came back and and excavated them from, from the bog. Um, and then developed them and the, the peat, the kind of decomposition, the, the decay processes which are driving the kind of inherent ecologies of these landscapes, also left their kind of fingerprints on on the films in these kind of organic walls and kind of um, um, patternings and and there's a lot of kind of erasure where the edge of the film was kind of essentially eaten away leaving um, frayed edges and patterns of of absence, I suppose. So once i developed the still images, I um, sliced the negatives um, digitally, each one into about a thousand tiny rectangular slices. Which in itself kind of made me think of the way that historically peat's been cut and extracted from the ground in the rectangular peats. And then the, each of these tiny frames became the frame of an animated film. So, in essence, you were moving in visually through these degraded still images. So, you get these washes of color, which kind of are not only from the visual landscape. From the kind of processes of decay and decomposition that it then offered to the to that kind of materiality of the film over six months.
1: The other lovely thing about that, Rob, is the way that you know in archaeology we're always taking fragments and you know ecological surveys. We're always working with these little fragments, aren't we, and slices of time, and, um, and trying to put them back together to animate change. And um, it's a really lovely reflection of that in in the process of your making.
2: Yeah, and I think what it did is it gave us, with the three approaches between us, three kind of resonant but different types of films that then we put into our own archive um, that can all kind of talk to each other in the way that the viewer then curates it.
1: What you're talking about is, it's that getting time into the, the making of the film, isn't it? And I think the lovely thing about making this work was that we all found different ways into the idea of peat and what it is and the time, but in doing so, it's a constant process of discovery, isn't it? You're, you're thinking through that landscape in an effort to make the creative work. It's sort of pushing forward. your thinking about the material itself as well. And I think that's the really lovely thing about making art about landscapes. It's not just about making work that's going out. It's about how you're thinking through that. And it's, it's driving you forward in your, your thinking as well.
2: Yeah. And your understanding of the landscape develops and evolves and deepens through creative practice like this. You know, it's, I firmly believe that art is a thinking process about being, being attentive, being present um, and letting the landscape show up and surprise you and challenge you. It's not about bringing preconceived ideas and practices to a place necessarily. I think at this point in the project we'd done a lot of filming and we knew broadly how we wanted the website to look and we knew, you know, we had an idea of how we wanted the visitor experience to be when people could access these three films and kind of curate their own visual landscape. But as we all work with sound a lot in our daily practices, we knew that it needed this kind of sonic element and... You know, we're all big advocates for the many things that sound can do to tell us about people and place and environments and environmental change. Um, So the next big question, I suppose, in the project was to think about how a sound work that we made might interact with uh, the visual work that we've been making. So you took a trip down to the moors, didn't you, when lockdown sort of eased a little bit, Rose? And maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and the sounds that you started to record there.
1: Yeah, so I went down in May, um, which is a great time to go in terms of sound to the moors because everything's so alive, isn't it, in May time. And, um, you know, the sun's shining and uh, everything sort of is activated in the landscape. And I went out to Dartmoor and... Bodmin. and on Dartmoor I went with the South West Peatlands team right up sort of into the middle of Dartmoor really and we went to one site that was very barren very drained very full of millennia and then a second site which had been restored the year before up a hanging stone which was all big pools you know lots and lots of big pools lots of um, stagnating going on and I was really interested in th- the difference between those two um, landscapes really you know, working with you both for a few years, I have I love this way of sounding your way into a landscape and the fact that these different microphones give you different ways in and sort of open up a world that you were quite unaware of or, or were only sort of slightly aware of before that. And um, up on the, the very dry site, um, I remember putting the headphones on and just having a recorder just out. help... Um, you know, just in the landscape close to the grass and this amazing sound of the linear grass just brushing against each other, real dry crackle. V- very little bird song, really, and just the sound of the wind. It was just wind and grass, really. And then going to Hanging Stone and um, Morag and the rest of the team were sort of uh, moving around the pools, talking about different things to do with the project. And I experimented with using your hydrophones, Rob, and putting those into the pools and um
2: so hydrophones are underwater microphones aren't
1: they yeah and it's amazing that sort of sense of um a sort of how you suddenly have to go about navigating a landscape differently so you're looking for different things you know where's going to be a pool that potentially has good sound in it and i love the fact that sometimes you think oh this pool is going to be brilliant it's got lots of sphagnum and it's going to be really good and you pop them in and then you it's just very little going on at all. And um, other times you, you know, pop them in and you come across a little sound or something happening. And it's this um, opening up of life under the water that I really love. Um, and in those pools, um, you know, up on the moor that day out, the thing I really remember was, you know, the more sort of, it, it goes off and it stops. And beyond it, you could see right out across Dartmoor and all these different colours And then these pools were just this vibrant green. They kind of captured the light with all this new sphagnum moss. And as you listened into them, you could hear the bubbles of oxygen. And this was the sort of creation of new life. And um, it felt really hopeful in hearing those sounds. But I loved the way as well you you, um, pick up accidental sounds with the microphones. You know, at one point I was uh, there recording and listening very intently and could hear birds and uh, the pools. And then I could hear this strange noise and I couldn't work out what it was. Uh, and then suddenly it was um, a whole load of guys from the army just appeared out of nowhere. <laughs> and there was the sound of them coming. So I love these sort of accidental things that happen in these landscapes. And out on Bodmin, I remember um the, the thing I like about both sound recording and filming is that you have to be really, really still in a landscape. And I remember standing very still with them. Um, the camera was filming and I was uh, just recording the sound the atmosphere and suddenly this little um, like mini tornado of wind just started about three metres away from me and it whooshed past me in a, in a whirlwind and then it went past and then it stopped again. And it was one of these magical things that happens on the moors, these weird little elemental uh, happenings. And I love the fact that when you're standing still, just being completely attentive both to the sound and the image of what's happening around you, you get these magical, unexpected moments, and that's what makes these landscapes so special. But I know you also did lots of um, sound recordings out where you were as well, Rob.
2: Yeah, there's there's two things there. Listening to you talk about the experience of recording, like the, the hydrophones, these kind of underwater mics, mm. and you know we used contact mics as well, which are a little. Um, flat microphones that clip to materials in the landscape so you can can clip them to long wire fences strung across the landscape for example and microphones like this they give you a kind of a sonic window into other worlds you know in the way perhaps the films are doing in stacks they let you kind of listen in to these kind of um networks of life, um, networks of kind of vibration that are going on above and, and beyond our usual kind of capabilities as as humans to, to listen. And I think there's something quite beautiful about that. I think there's something that gives us a kind of an environmental ethic to that about being, you know, um, aware of all these kind of forms of life that are kind of going on meshed with us, but also without us scaffolding up our our lives through Peatlands. And as you say, it can be quite a magical thing, like dropping these mics into seemingly blank... um, pools of water and hearing, you know, um, underwater insects stridulate, rubbing their back legs together really, really quick and sound anything like rubbing your finger down a comb really quickly through to all these kind of squeaks and, and um, you know, creaks and um, same dropping them in the sphagnum moss, you know, these kind of, these pops and crackles almost like fire as this, this bog seems to breathe, it expands and it contracts. Um, and similarly, with the contact mics, you know, putting them on these long wire fences, it's almost like making a musical instrument out of these miles long and um, taut um, wires, kind of strung that are tuned to the, the characteristics of the landscape and the way it's being kind of affected by wind and rain that kind of whir and patter onto, onto the wire. Um, but also when you're recording out in the open air, you know, we we did that with kind of recording bird calls and the sound of wind and vegetation, the sound of, um, you know, people moving through the landscape. Um, as you say, the army, the aeroplanes in the in distance, the way that, you know, white noise washes from kind of rivers and, and, and towns nearby to the extent that you don't always know exactly what you're listening to. Um, I think that has a really valuable effect as you say of putting you in that place where interesting things happen it puts you right in your body in that place at that time and I think it does become like a very slow attentive process of of getting to know a place getting to know a landscape and I think all of this kind of contributes to a, a form of what we might call kind of an expanded listening an expanded listening Across scales, across life forms, across materials. Um, one that we as the recordist are like right in the centre of, but we're kind of trying to do it in a modest way, you know, like open these sonic doors to hear other forms of life.
1: There's so much going on, isn't there, in a the landscape. There's so many different uh, time scales playing out, different kinds of life, as you say, you know, all these different things integrating with one another it's quite hard to communicate that. It's quite hard to get a handle on that, isn't it, um, yourself? And I think through sound, it is this lovely way of things just coming in and out and interplaying in ways that you didn't expect is a, a really magical way of beginning to understand that landscape um, and get a grip on all those different um, scales of things.
2: So we were trying to understand this landscape through all its various kind of sounds that it resonates with and that, that come from it, but you were also recording the voices of people who live and work there weren't
1: you? Yeah so I think we were really interested in the project in capturing the stories that could be drawn from the peat and people's very unique understandings of peatlands through their different kinds of work. I think in working in landscape I think all of us feel really strongly that it's voices that really bring them alive and giving people the space to talk about the thing that they work with or the the landscape that they're close to So I went and talked to different members of the project team. So Morag Angus, the project director, and George Kaler, who's the project officer, and uh, Martin Gillard, who's the historic environment officer. And through those different perspectives, tried to get understandings of um, the past in the peatland and what we can understand from those past worlds and how archaeologists are working with that. But also critical insights into the landscape through the ecologists working there and the work that they're trying to do with the peatland restoration and their vision for the future you know what what is it that isn't there in that landscape that that should be and how do we know that and how can we make those changes so beginning to get a sense of a broader narrative of this landscape in terms of time and and location and the sort of rich tapestry of all the different elements that tie into that and then through those voices we began to get a real sense of the stories and then Rob, you went and um, you found all these fantastic oral histories as well, didn't you, of those much older voices from the peat, working with the peat in terms of peat cutting. But what I loved about those as well is that the, the voices um, are so full of place, aren't they? The those lovely dialects of Bodmin and Dartmoor, and um, you just get a real sense of a, a voice that's full of full of the landscape. And uh, I mean, in fact, that's what
2: peat is. It's it's, it's actually rotted. Rotted moss, rotted, rotted vegetation, and uh, of course it's been there so many years and Yeah, they were all um, from the Dartmoor Trust, a uh, project called More Memories, an oral history project uh, from 2008, uh, and they very kindly let us use um, some of the recordings of um, people through the 20th century Um, talking about, yeah, uh, working in these peatlands, their kind of experiences of them and and cutting peat a lot of the time. So they added another real kind of different flavour to these these voices that we heard. But you also recorded a local poet, didn't
1: you? Yeah, I went and talked to my friend Luke Thompson who uh, grew up uh, very close to Bodmin Moor and who um, works there a lot and talked to him a lot about the literature of Bodmin Moor and what you can tell from you know, the, the stories um, of Daphne du Maurier and things of these references to turf cuttings and getting lost on the moors. And Luke actually came out with me and helped um, do quite a lot of the, the sound recording and filming with my assistant and did lots of things like walking around me in wellies making lots of squelchy noises. Uh, but Luke also, we created um, these lists, uh, different lists of uh, words associated with peatlands, be they the sounds that people made or the uh, places in Dartmoor and Bodmin and Exmoor and Luke read those out for us and in, in his readings they sort of become these poetic forms of place, um, these sort of rhythmic lists of, of landscape, I suppose. Darkening.
2: Fermenting. Flexing. Quaking. Seeping. Shaking. Swaddled. Squelch. Slop. Slap. So Tommy, we at this stage we'd made a lot of the films. We Rose and I had done a lot of recordings, both out on the peatlands and kind of gathered these various voices. And so it was almost at this point that we handed a big palette of stuff over to you to start thinking about composition of the of the sound and the music that visitors hear when they when they get to the website. So I wonder if you could talk about how you how you began and and what your processes were.
0: Well, the lovely thing about this is that um, it was a very clear brief, I suppose. Um, that we'd all been working in this peaty mindset for a number of years and um, had been thinking quite deeply about the the processes involved in a peatland. I had been handed a story to Underscore, so Rose had done this lovely work of taking the interviews that she'd conducted and Rob's um, selected oral histories and created this narrative that takes the listener on a journey through the the landscape and the work that's being done there and thinking about the past, present and future. I had this as part of my my brief and this amazing um, sound palette of recordings that Rose and Rob you'd gathered in your recording sessions and also we augmented this with some extra sounds that we hadn't managed to record that are very important to represent the landscapes of so some particular bird calls that we wanted to, to make sure that were in there, which we sourced from this incredible resource, Xeno Canto, an, an amazing database of, of birdsong. So I had this brilliant set of, of sounds to work with. So it's a really lovely um, beginning point there's so much opportunity there for me and I, I love these situations where there's a clear brief and a kind of sonic palette to work with and there are, are kind of limits that allow me to push against those limits and, and explore creatively. That's where I tend to do my best work where there's, like, there's a really nice set of constraints. So I started to think about all of the ideas that we've been discussing, all of the processes in the landscape, all of the kind of stories that we wished to share and tried to think about sonic or sound techniques, music production techniques, um, processing techniques that represent some of these ideas. And one of my first thoughts was, to try to represent both the physical appearance of the landscape, but also this idea of the long, deep time development of the landscape. And so I went to a tried and tested technique of mine, one of my favourite kind of toolkit techniques of time stretching, um, which is a, a method of elongating a sound and there's many different ways to stretch a sound and I used as many as I could because um, it's it's kind of like some of the photographic techniques um, that Rob was using, burying a photo in the landscape and then slicing it into these tiny sections. It, it's kind of an audio equivalent of that. So um, technical side of it does slice the sound into tiny sections, which software can then use these tiny sections to stretch out the sound, can imagine where the um, gaps in between these sections are and create um, new detail. So in stretching a sound out, and I I would typically take a sound that maybe began as 30 seconds and stretch it out to 20 minutes long, and you get all these little details that aren't evident when you're just listening to the sound playing back at normal speed it's again this process of revealing hidden worlds things that we normally can't perceive and I absolutely love that technique I find it deeply inspiring and usually the results um, to listen to are quite relaxing as well they they, um, tend to create wind-like effects and kind of rises and falls in the volume of the sound and sweeping kind of effects but also these granular moments which echoed the sounds that you were talking about with the hydrophones so these kind of like bubbles of sound rising up and what I did was process lots of the recordings through this technique to create upwards of 40 layers of sound. Um, And Rob and I did also augment some of the um, field recording with some tonal um, recordings using some conventional instruments to create notes, some drones um, that we decided we would use the keys of E and A taken from the the middle of the word Pete. So a very (laughs) straightforward kind of punning on how to, to find a route into a sound world. So we created lots of drones, lots of these time-stretched recordings. And so I I ended up having a very large stack of sounds from deep sub basses through basses, mid-tones, up to very high-frequency sounds. And in the composition, I tried to follow the um, narrative and in discussion with the two of you, we kind of picked out areas which needed to have different kind of sound environments. And essentially, once I'd made these different layers, I was pulling them apart, you know, hiding and revealing different layers as appropriate as we kind of, as the story takes you from the past to the present to the future, from deep below ground to. Into the sky at points, so I was trying to follow these in the the process of composition.
1: What I love about uh, the way you've done it, Tommy, and is the way that you get a sense of those places and those environments, whilst it's not always obvious what those exactly are. It's this lovely sort of abstract feeling, I suppose. It sort of it tunes into something deep in you, doesn't it? That um, evokes a sense of, of depth or airiness or. Um, mm. mood I suppose and um, yeah I really love that that it knits together these very different kinds of narratives and you can hear it in different ways as well
2: yeah it's like the um, the site specific non-specific let's call it like it comes very particularly from a place or a set of places you know and it's come from this kind of very fine grain attention but it's been abstracted away into all these play- into all these kind of new forms like sonically visually um, and like you say, I think there's something it opens up by quite interesting new spaces for for experience and for for thinking in doing that. You know, so I, I wonder on that note. Once we'd kind of built this website, and you know, we've got the film, we've got the sound, we've got the voices there. What's your experience of going onto the website now? What and what? What would you hope that an experience that a visitor might have?
0: quite rare for one of my own projects but i've actually visited the website quite a number of times (laughs) now and i have to say that i've enjoyed it and i think um i've enjoyed trying out all these different visual combinations and kind of um maybe kind of unconsciously trying to create pictures that accompany the soundtrack um you know it's Responding to the changes in the stories a little bit and being um, surprised by these combinations of images and and particularly maybe when one of the archive images comes up at the same time as somebody's discussing um, the kind of stories of the past, of cutting peat, That's that's been really enjoyable.
1: Yeah, I think for me it's been that uh, aspect that what I love about making artwork about, landscapes and time and things is that really what you're trying to do is create something that people can continue to find their way into, something that can continue to grow and be. It's not an end point. It's a, it's a, a launching off point for people to explore something and um, to be curious about it or be moved by it. And I think, you know, that's really what um, Tommy's composition does as well, is I think it kind of creates a sense of, of being moved by something and affected by it. And to care about it, and I think that's really what we set out to do, wasn't it? Was to make people understand change in peatlands, but that you know really what the the Southwest Peatland Partnership is trying to do is is make people care about peatlands and make people uh, think about them, make them part of people's consciousness. That they're not they're not they're invisible, but they're very much part of our lives. And um, I think that's what excites me about making artwork about it, is its Is it you're just giving people the ingredients and the, the place at which they can begin a, a journey into exploring that and find more things and I'm excited by how different people who have been exploring the website have reacted to it both specialists you know ecologists archaeologists uh, people managing landscapes in different ways our beginning is beginning to make them think differently about their work but also people coming to it and who've never really experienced peatlands and I think at this point in time where work in peatlands has really kind of come through a change in recent years you know there's been a lot of resistance to peatland restoration and i think people are just beginning to realize the importance of these landscapes and the importance of this this future change and so it feels there's something really hopeful in the work that gives people inspiration to carry on exploring them
2: yeah yeah so we're recording this podcast in the middle of june 2023 um the the website got released a couple of weeks ago uh, to coincide with World Peatlands Day, um, what do you guys think is next for it? How is this project going to continue and evolve?
1: I think there's lots of exciting uh, prospects. Not half because the Southwest Peatland Partnership are so keen to develop these things, and it's been a real pleasure to work with a group of people and a, a project who are so willing to experiment with artistic approaches and to give things a go. And we're talking at the moment about taking the work into exhibition spaces, aren't we? It's uh, going to be out on the radio a bit and it's sort of finding its way out into the world in, in different ways. But I think also there's elements of the project, aren't there, which just feel like maybe have just begun. Things like the conversations with people who work in those peatlands feels like there were lots more conversations that, that could be had. And that process of listening to people being as valuable as the, the communication of those voices um, feels an important part, but what, what about you guys?
0: Oh, I think you've you've said it very well there. You know, as that's really lovely that idea of continuing to listen. Um, I love that, and I'm very excited about the the possibility of showing this in some physical spaces because um, as people have been able to occupy physical spaces more, again, um, it'd be lovely to to share this in a a real space. Um, that it's not only existing as a website Thanks for listening to this podcast If you haven't already, please take a look at the project website peatstacks.uk Stacks was commissioned and funded by the Southwest Peatland Partnership